Okay, good morning. Uh, my name is Adam Jones. Uh, I am a pastor in Central Florida, and uh, I have two kids uh, that attend uh, Berry College, um, so we're up here seeing them, and Brian asked me to, to step into the pulpit. So I'm very glad to be here. I've been here a few times, and uh, it's always enjoyable. Hey, listen, in, in, uh, in Advent, I know you guys have been doing different things, and this morning we're going to look at a passage specifically in Isaiah chapter 11. But before I actually read the text, you kind of need to know a little bit about the setting. Isaiah uh, has uh, really just started his ministry. And he has started his ministry in a time of great leadership vacuum. David, the king, has long been dead. And recently, right as he began his ministry, Isaiah did, a very, very good king named King Uzziah had died. And right at the time of this writing, the Assyrians have been wreaking havoc on the Israelites. They have been burning cities and destroying, destroying them and pillaging them. And, and uh, literally and figuratively, the land of Israel is a stump, barren wasteland. There's, uh, there's no birds singing. There's just smoldering stumps. There's no trees. It's a wasteland in many, many, many ways. And this is the context in which Isaiah chapter 11 uh, is written. Hey, and if you don't mind, uh, as we read this, um, uh, would, you, would you stand and we're going to read God's Word uh, together? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge with what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity of the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child will lead them. Cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. A nursing child shall play over the cobras, over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people, of him, shall be a, of him shall all the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Heavenly Father, would you, uh, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? And would you help those who listen to understand the significance of you being the Advent King? And would you help the one who preaches, for his sins are many. In Jesus' name, you may, amen, you may be seated. Now... Being in the season of Advent and uh, looking forward to the coming of Christmas, Christmas is about hope. 
But yet sometimes as we look out on the landscape of our world, we feel hopelessness. We see a stump barren wasteland. We see places where beautiful flourishing trees in our own lives, good things have been cut down never to grow again. And there is much that's been cut down in our world. Virginia Tech, Aurora, Colorado, the Philippines, Katrina, 9-11, and Newtown, Connecticut. And there's many times that Christmas is, well, you know it's not a very easy time for many people. Because there's people missing in families. You know, when you look at the whole range of human misery from restlessness and shame and guilt and broken relationships, futility at work and evil and sadness in our lives, there's something that kind of aches within us, something that kind of groans within us and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for wholeness and fullness, for someone to set things right. Yet, Advent and Christmas finds its deepest meaning when we understand the stumps among us. So we're going to look at this passage and look at the Advent King that Isaiah is talking about. The first thing that we want to notice about this passage is that this King, when He comes, He's going to come and rule with judgment. If you look at verses 2 and the last part of 4, it says in the midst of this devastation Isaiah is telling you, there's going to be a stump, there's going to be a shoot that comes from the, the, the stump of Jesse that actually bears fruit. And then in verse 2, he will be like no other king, wisdom, power, authority, counsel, and might, that he will use his royal power to judge. That he will use his royal power to judge, that he will destroy the wicked, he will destroy the evil, just simply with the words of his mouth, just with a breath, he will destroy the wicked. Now, a lot of modern people really struggle with the idea of a God of judgment. That God would actually punish people. I, I, I can't handle a God like that. I can't handle a God that would bring judgment or that has this God of doom. Yet, if there is no judgment day, then there are only two things. We either lose hope or we turn to vengeance. Either it means this tyranny and oppression that has been so dominant over all the ages will never be addressed. And it makes no difference whether you and I live a life of kindness or cruelty. Or it means that if there is no judgment, that what we really need to do, if the evildoer is never going to be called into account, what you and I need to do in every situation in which there is wrong in our society or wrong in our lives, that we should just do the only thing we can do is take vengeance now. Is to really go after anyone who wrongs us. But the biblical doctrine of judgment, far from being a gloomy idea, actually enables us to live with hope and grace. For from it, hope, we can have hope because we can have an incentive to work for justice, that no matter how little success that we might have in our worlds to bring about justice, that we know that one day, someday, justice will be established, that all wrong will be made right. But not just hope, we can also live with grace. It enables us to be gracious and to forgive and to set aside vengeance and violence. Why? If we are not sure there's a final judgment, then we will want to make all wrongs right. And when we are wronged, I know how you are, I feel this irresistible compulsion to pay back. But if there is a final judgment, then we can live at peace because we know all things will be set right. 
Now, the people of Isaiah's day, because of the hands of the Assyrians, were crying out for justice. They were crying out to God. And you know, we cry out for justice too. When we think about um, mass shootings, when we think about um, Casey Anthony, when we think about the fact in Newtown, Connecticut, that the high school football team had the number 26 all season long on their helmets. 26 for the 26 victims that were mowed down at elementary school. You know, I still have burned in my mind the images of 9-11 and people clinging to the side of the towers and leaping to their deaths. And so inwardly there is this groan and ache within all of us that comes out at times and we cry out, we say, how long, O Lord? How long will you allow this to go on? God, are you going to be silent? Are you going to sit still and say you're a good and powerful king and you are not going to rise up and take care of the wicked? Now, in our world, we can sometimes bring evil people to justice. But the one thing that we cannot do is that we cannot undo evil. We cannot undo the loss that evil causes. This is a quote Peter uh, Van Eugen writes this. He says, at some point for all eternity, there will be no more unmerited suffering. This present darkness, the age of evil, will eventually be remembered as a brief flicker at the beginning of human history. Every evil done by the wicked to the innocent will have been avenged and every tear will be wiped away. Fedor Dostoevsky, who suffered much evil and, uh, and uh, pain in Russia, wrote these very compelling words. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdities of the human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, and of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed. And it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. Those, those are powerful words. Do you believe, do you understand that the Advent King, when He comes and when He judges, that every time the human heart has screamed out at the death of loved ones, at the death of children, every time they scream out, why? That the Advent King will bring healing to every one of those questions. He'll comfort all resentments. So first, the Advent King rules with judgment. And the second thing we, we want to look at see in this passage is that he reconciles with righteousness. Verses 3, 4, and 5. It says that he will not judge the poor and the meek and the needy by what he sees. And he will not judge them by what he hears, but he'll judge them with what? He'll judge them with his righteousness. All right. Now, his righteousness is described as his very clothing. 
Now, Jesus will judge not by what he sees or what he hears, which means he will not judge based on behavior. He will not judge based on performance, good or bad, for the poor and the weak. He will not not judge, he will not listen to people boasting about how wonderful they are, or how religious they are, or how many good deeds they've done. He will not judge that way. His judgment will be more harsh. He will judge by his his righteousness. He will reconcile the poor, the orphan, the needy, the sinner with his righteousness. In other words, this is the gospel. That you and I, we cannot merit God's favor. We cannot win God's smile. We cannot clothe ourselves. The king must clothe us with his righteousness. Now, here's the problem. You and I don't believe this. We don't believe this. We make our life and our faith about producing a life of worth to ease the agony of the poverty within. And This is the curse of the fall. We're still looking for a fig leaf big enough to cover our shame, our inadequacy. And listen, I want to tell you something. You know this so deep within you that this is the most exhausting thing about being human. Is trying to prove your worth, trying to validate yourself, trying to feel like you have some kind of goodness in your life, that you can actually do something really well to get noticed, to get affirmed, that you would feel righteous, that you would feel whole in any way. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, I, I don't have any of my Christmas shopping done. I haven't even started. <laughs> and uh, maybe some of you haven't started either, but you know, I've got some good ideas for you. And if you want a really fun gift, I've got a place that you can go. Um, it might be best for white elephants, but nevertheless, there's this uh, museum in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it's the Museum of Failed Products. These are products that people have tried to put on the market, um, but they didn't work. And this museum is, is host to all of these products. And so it's the only place in the world where you can find Clairol's Touch of Yogurt Shampoo. Okay, alongside Gillette's equally unpopular for oily hair only. Or the Pepsi AM Breakfast Cola, born in 1989 and it died in 1990. Now the museum has all these different kinds of discontinued uh, caffeinated beer. Uh, fortune Snookies, which were a little cookie uh, snack with fortunes, the fortunes for dogs in them. Um, you can find there these packets of breath mints that they simply had to remove from the shelves of stores because they look like crack cocaine. And it's also the place where you'll find uh, current products that are on the market. Um, one current product that is trying to be sold is Pizza Hut Cologne. Yeah, You smell like hot bread, baby. All right. And this is my favorite, and I have almost have got enough courage to try it. Coffee made from elephant dung. Ugh. Now, you might wonder, okay, when, if I'm going to put a, a product on the market, what's the chance that my product's going to make it? What's the failure rate of a product? It's 90%. 90% of products that put on the market, are, they fail. They don't make it. So here's the question. What is your product failure rate? As you try to find ways to quiet the inner poverty, to still the inner emptiness that you feel that crushes you, what is your success rate? Now, I wasn't going to do this, and I really don't have time, but hey, 
is Christmas. I'm going to stay this next week, and I'm going to set up an appointment, and I'm going to meet with every person in this room. And what we're going to do is that we're going to go over your life, detail by detail, and we're going to look at all of your failed attempts. We'll look at some good stuff too, but mostly we're just going to focus on things that you've done in life that haven't worked to make you feel good about yourself. Now, would you show for such an appointment? No. Because no human being can bear the weight of walking through the museum of their failed attempts to make life work. It would crush you. And this is why you and I fake it so much. We fake it and we find ways to feed that inner hunger. You know, when I was a kid, one of the ways I wanted to feed my inner hunger to be significant was I just had one phrase that I just kind of turned over in my mind, and I thought, gosh, if I could just do this, man, then I know I'd be somebody. Be like Mike. Be like Mike. I mean, who doesn't like the Michael Jordan? Who doesn't like the guy who glides through the air and dunks over five opponents? I mean, the guy was a sports icon like no one ever has been in history. And so because of this, when he turned 50, ESPN did this big, a big cover story on him, an interview with him, and they talked to Michael Jordan. And these are some of the things that he said. Michael Jordan said that his self-esteem has always been tied to the game of basketball. And that he has this obsession to relive the best days of his career. And that without his life being tethered to the game of basketball, he feels adrift. He doesn't know who he is. And so for the past 11 years, since retiring for the third time, he is running, moving as fast as he can, creating distractions, filling his schedule. He feels the competitiveness kick in again. And he starts to exercise. And he starts to pump iron. And he starts to work on his jump shot. And he thinks, can I play again at 50? What would I do against LeBron? And he said, this restlessness so owns him that this is what he says. He says, how can I enjoy the next 20 years with so much consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Away from a place that gave me worth and righteousness? How do I quiet this inner poverty? Listen, you and I, uh, we don't have to wish that we could be like Mike. We are like Mike. We are tied to the game of trying to prove that we matter. Madonna said this. She says, I have an iron will. And I have a will that has always been, my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think, ah, oh, mediocre. I'm uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's what's always pushing me. Pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. There's a man I know... And um, he actually, he reached the top of, his top of his profession. And he became addicted to prescription drugs in part because in his profession he felt like he had this inner expectation of himself that he always had to be productive and dynamic and upbeat and brilliant. 
He wrote these words. He said, my life was built on two premises. One was that I can control your opinion and approval of me through my performance. And the second premise was this, that the first premise is all that mattered in life. Is all that mattered. Let me ask you a question. Are you a good Christian? Are you a bad Christian? Are you a good Christian? Or are you a bad Christian? It's a trick question. The problem is, is that you think that's the fundamental question of life. The problem is, is that we think that is the question. But the gospel means that you can let go of your obsession of your own goodness and your worth and the product of your life. The gospel means you can rest from that drive, that Michael Jordan drive to prove yourself to yourself and others and to God. And you know what? God is not obsessed over your goodness. He's not obsessed over your performance religiously. He's not obsessed over what worth you can acquire in life. Because He's done something about it. He's given you in Christ the righteousness of Jesus. And so you can close down the museum. Greg Luganis uh, was uh, an Olympic diver. He won 17 gold medals, four of which um, were in the Olympics. He's the only Olympic diver to consecutively, in back-to-back Olympics, just sweep the diving um, event. And yet, Greg Luganis uh, had a problem. In warm-ups, as he would get ready for competitions, he was absolutely the worst. His dives were awful. He would hit the water at the wrong place. His splash would be too big. He actually would hit his toes, his chin, his elbow, his hands on the platform. Just looked. And the commentators would be watching warm-ups and they would go, how is Greg going to turn this around? How is he going to get his focus to ever deliver a dive that could win a gold? Yet, when the time of competition came, and Greg Luganis stood on the edge of the platform. He'd nail every dive. Gold medal, gold medal, gold medal, gold medal. And so finally they asked him, I said, Greg, what, how do you do this? You are awful in warm-ups. Yet, your performance is, is pure. And he said, well, I, in warm-ups, I tell myself, I said, you know, I can really push myself because, you know, I, I, I just have to remember the same thing that I remember... Um, uh, as I stand on the platform when I'm getting ready to dive. And they said, what that? He says, well, when I stand on the platform and the dive matters and the dive counts and it's for the thing, I just tell myself one thing. I have the approval of my mom. I have the affection of my mom. And if I belly flop, if my performance in front of television cameras and, and fans and audience, if all that's bad, it doesn't, I will not lose my mom's affection. And so when I stand on the platform, All I do is I think about that. And then I jump. And then I jump. That's the gospel. You're covered in the affection and the delight because of Jesus' righteousness. You know, 14 years ago, my wife and I were looking at adopting a little girl from India. And um, 
she was a little girl that was that was uh, left at an orphanage um, with some with some pretty intense brokenness, and she was uh, she was she was without hope, without a family, without a mother, without a father, without a family at all. And they were she was left at night um, in a basket um, at the door of the orphanage. And so this broken little girl had had nothing. She was poor. She was needy. And so as we kind of go through this adoption process, one of the main questions was, what are we going to name her? And so my wife and I remember we go on walks and we talk about, well, we can name her this and we could name her that. And, and how does that go with the last name of Jones? I was gonna, so finally, we, we get this little girl's name. They tell us what her given name is. And her name was Sashika. And we're like, oh, kind of like that, Sashika. And we said, could you tell us what that means? And they said it means beloved. You are that child. And the gospel renames you. You are covered in a new name. If you're in Christ, you're covered with the name beloved. And so you can rest. You don't have to earn his favor. And no matter how many times your product fails, no matter how many times you belly flop, the God of the universe will stand in the stadium and give you His delight. Third, He rules with judgment. He reconciles with the righteous. And last, in the verses 6-10, through 10, we see that He renews all things. We see this beautiful picture of a new world that this King will bring. The wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear. I mean, it's a staggering picture of the end of all hostility. And it talks about how they'll eat straw, which means there'll be no more bloodshed, no more hostility, no more uh, hostility in families on the battlefield, the healing of enmity, the healing of evil and hatred and suffering. And God is speaking through Isaiah in a world of stumps. And what Isaiah t- God tells Isaiah to do is go into the future and pull it into the present as a sign of hope of the Advent King. Now, but the thing is, is right now, what do we have? We've got loss. We've got suffering. We've got heartache. When I was in high school, my high school English teacher showed us a poem that absolutely haunted me. It was a poem by Edgar Allan Poe where he talks about loss that we all feel, the loss of love, the loss of hope. It's called The Raven. It starts like this. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. And what, was, what, was it, what was tapping? What was rapping? A raven, a bird. The bird was rapping on the chamber door. And at the end of each refrain of this poem, you remember what it says? The raven says, nevermore. Nevermore. And it conveys with frightening pithiness that the irreversibility of life, the irreversibility of life, that once your youth is over, once your, your kids are gone, once your home is gone, once your loved ones are gone, there's no going back. That irreversibility in life, irreversibility is a kind of death 
in the midst of life. You cannot undo or go back or relive the best times of your life. You cannot undo or fix or go back and fix the worst times of your life. And the raven mocks you. He haunts you at the, each, at the end of each refrain of your life and he mocks you with nevermore. When, um, when, when uh, my second child uh, went to college, um, my daughter came to Barry, and then my son left for college, and it was about a month later, and I was mowing the yard. And as I'm mowing the yard, I just start to weep. And I'm sobbing. And I don't know why. But before I finished mowing the yard, I finally knew why I was sobbing. Because my kids were gone. Their childhood was over. No more flag football. No more peewee soccer. Um, No more picking them up after school. No more prom dates. No more volleyball. No more my daughter coming in for the middle school dance with her mouth full of braces and saying, Dad, how do I look? It was gone. No more teaching them to drive. Well, that was a good thing. It was gone. (laughs) But that's why I was weeping. I was was a sadness overtook me. And listen, in the world of stumps, sometimes in much worse scenarios, we say in despair, we, we stand before nevermores in the hospital, by the tombstone, in the Philippines, in the new town, in our town, and we hear the mocking despair of the raven say to us, nevermore. So the question is this, how does the Advent King deal with and make everything all new? In verse 8, you notice something that's very unusual. It's really what the passage is kind of building towards. The child does what? The child plays in the den of the cobra. The child reaches in to the viper's den and is not bidden. The little infant sits in the coil of the rattlesnake and plays, and no harm comes to this child. What is the deal? Wait a minute. A child and a serpent. I think I've heard that before. Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God is speaking to the evil one, the serpent. He says, I will put enmity and hostility between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring, the child. And he, the child, shall crush your head and you shall bite on his heel. This is the foreshadowing of the Advent King. And he will come and he will be bitten on the heel by evil. That everything that's broken in the world, everything moral failure, everything sin, everything... uh, cancer, several palsy, he'll become death and disease, all result of the fall. He'll be bitten by the serpent of evil. And in his death and in his resurrection, he will crush the head of the serpent. And he will silence the raven of nevermore. J.R. Tolkien, in his book, The Lord of the Rings, the very last book, um, Sam the Hobbit is with all the crew, you know, Gandalf and all the little different Variations of humans. And uh, there's a volcano and it kind of knocks them out, particularly knocks out Sam. And Sam wakes up from being knocked unconscious. 
And uh, he's really, he's really uh, kind of disturbed a little bit. And, and he turns to Gandalf, the great wizard, and he says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's your question. That's the question of every human heart. And listen, it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim, Jewish, you don't believe, you're atheist, you've never been to church, this is your first time to church. The deepest question of the human heart is everything sad going to come untrue. And only Christianity gives you that. Only the gospel, only the Advent King. Complete restoration. Christianity, because of the Advent King, we do not get a consolation prize for all that we've lost. Rather, complete restoration. Everything given back. This past year, uh, I did a funeral for a single mom of six children. She was tragically hit by a car and killed. And this was a family that I knew very well. One of the boys had played basketball with my son, and I had known them for almost 10 years. College age, all the way down to middle school. And as I walked these kids through their mom's service, I took them right to the raven. And I said this, I said, she's going to miss your graduation. She's going to miss your wedding. She's not going to hold the grandkids. She's not going to see the next stages in your life. She's not going to be there for Thanksgiving. And she's not going to be there for Christmas. I said, her story just stops. And I said, we will do our best. You will do your best to move on. You'll think about memories. You'll think about stories. You'll always have a picture of your mom on your mantle. But I said to them, I said, I want to tell you something. That's not enough. You want more. You want a full story of your mother. And then I told them, I said, everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything that you experience in loss will be given back. Every memory, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every moment that you could not live will be restored. That's what the Advent King brings. Not a consolation prize, but complete restoration. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 is, is amazing when you think about this passage and, this, and, and Isaiah 11 and this. It says, Romans 8 says, For the creation waits with eager longing uh, for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Listen, you know what you're groaning for? You're groaning for everything to be made new. That's what you're groaning for. That's Christmas. That's the Advent King. You know, the kingdom has come in Jesus. But the kingdom is coming. Theologians call it the already not yet. And we groan in hope between the first and the second coming. But the Advent King is causing shoots to come out of the stumps of our lives in the now. 
through the gospel, through the church, the renewal of human lives. C.S. Lewis, many of you know, had, had written extensively, but he wrote these books called The Chronicles of Narnia. You know, where the children are in this lost land of Narnia and Aslan. Aslan is the lion, the great royal lion. And he is the Christ figure in the book. And the white witch is a symbol of evil. And her dwarfs hold a spell on the land. And it's what? It's always winter. But it's never Christmas. And then there's this one scene where the dwarf... Scared as he is, comes up to the white witch, and this is what the dwarf says about the, the, the white witch's winter. He says to her, this is no passing thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. This is Aslan's doing." Listen, the gospel is the blowtorch on a frozen world of stumps, bringing forth new life. Christmas is no little thing. The thaw has begun. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. And I love this. He comes to make His blessings known far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Boy, we, we really have to be reminded uh, in our world that you are the Advent King. Father, we are so sometimes suffocated by the stump realities of our lives. The fear of the future. The fear of loss. The real loss that we experience. Father, would you, would you push in us and stir us the reality of your coming, that you have come, but that we wait for you to come again. And may Christmas this season be just that. May it be joy to the world, but joy to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.